Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. I dislike greatly what's the ask. Ask is a verb, it's not a noun. I dislike greatly incentivize. Incentive is a noun, not a verb. So most of those things like that, I do not like. John Moritsugu doesn't like corporate jargon. He thinks a moving company calling itself a logistics solutions provider is ridiculous. But if that kind of jargon is so annoying, why do so many of us use it? Hi, I'm Paul Haverfood. Happy holidays and best of the season to everyone. Welcome to an encore edition of The Cost of Living. Hemingway once wrote, The world breaks everyone, and afterward, many are strong at the broken places. But what if he'd written, Our learnings after reaching a pain point allow us to pivot our mission-critical solutions on a go-forward basis. A farewell to arms might have been a farewell to book sales. Am I right? Also today, what if I told you there was a magical place where groceries cost less? Milk, meat, cheese. Why some Canadians are crossing the border to get their hands on star-spangled bargains. And later in the show, how do you know Canada's housing market is through the looking glass? One word. Drawbridge. Listening to corporate types speak is kind of like listening to anyone else, except not really. Like, here's Google's CEO answering a question on a recent conference call. The sharper the technology curve is, we get excited by it because I think uh, we have built world-class capabilities in taking that and then driving down costs sequentially and then deploying it at scale. Uh, Sundar Pichai said technology curve, world-class, at scale, and driving down costs sequentially in less than 15 seconds. Every day, in countless emails and conversations, people are circling back and leveraging synergies. Corporate jargon. You don't just hear it at the office. It bleeds into everyday life. Maybe you've stuck a pin in something, been proactive, or got back to someone by EOD, end of day. People love to complain about jargon. They say it's word salad. But if jargon is so worthless, why do so many of us use it? I had an editor who just hated it when he saw the word grow used incorrectly. He'd stand up in the newsroom and say out loud to no one in particular, how are you going to grow profits? Pour water on them? Add fertilizer? 
that guy was? John Moritsugu. I worked at Dow Jones from 1981 to 2010. John was the managing editor of a financial news outlet for nearly 30 years. In that time, how many press releases did he read? Oh, man. Uh, easily more than 100 a day. So I could try to do the math. Like a million? If you read a million press releases, you see a lot of business jargon. And for John, it did lead to some key learnings. A particular uh, annoyance of mine is verbs that become nouns and nouns that become verbs. I dislike greatly what's the ask. Ask is a verb, it's not a noun. I dislike greatly incentivize. Incentive is a noun, not a verb. So most of those things like that, I do not like. Like it or not, every day, company after company sent out press releases. Almost all of them would include a sentence at the end describing what it did. It's called the boilerplate. And it forced John to slog through a lot of jargon. Every single company had the word solutions in the boilerplate. We are a logistics solutions provider. No, you're a moving company. You know, say, say what you are. Don't try to make it all fancy and, and uh, highfalutin, especially the tech companies. You could read their boilerplate and you would have no idea what it is they did. But we had a hell of a time trying to make our own boilerplate out of their boilerplate because we always did at the end of the story, we would say if the company did or somewhere in the story. And many times you just had no idea what they were talking about. Eric Anisich has studied jargon, when it's useful and when it's not. He's a professor at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business. Unlike slang, which is used socially, jargon is used in professional settings, and it's also different than technical language. If there's no other way to say it, you know, then, then fine. That's not jargon. That's just a technical term that is uh, the only way to say it. Um, jargon is, uh, you, you could say the same thing in a way that's more easily accessible to a broader audience, but you choose not to. You choose to use... Part of what makes jargon jargon is the choice to say something one way when another way is easier to understand. Instead of work together, you say synergize. So why use jargon at all? Eric says, in general, we have two motives when we talk to other people. The first one is clarity, right? It's not surprising that people want to effectively convey their meaning or their intended meaning to an audience. Then, you know, I think jargon is a fine way to communicate, you know, complex things. You know, some pieces of jargon are like, a, you know, are just like in your tool belt. And OK, well, in this situation, I know I need this piece of jargon tool, uh, you know, this linguistic tool that I can just throw at the problem and, and it will solve it. Sure, circle back might be a cliche, but if you're not trying to win a Pulitzer, it's fast and it gets the job done. But getting our meaning across clearly isn't the only reason we communicate. Language is used to not only convey the literal meaning of words, but also to signal something about the speaker and their actual or desired position in some sort of social system or hierarchy. It's kind of similar to 
why someone might buy a fancy sports car, for example, right? It signals that that person is successful and wealthy, let's say. Um, and you may have heard of this phrase in the context of consumer behavior, this idea of conspicuous consumption, where you buy a sports car because you want to signal something about yourself. And I think of jargon similarly. It's almost like a form of conspicuous communication that people use to compensate for feelings of insecurity or, or low status. Someone could use jargon to try to fit in or as a way to build themselves up. The lower you are in the hierarchy, the more likely you are to use jargon. The people lower in status tend to be more motivated by how they will be evaluated by their audience than the higher status people who care more about communication clarity. If you're just starting a job and want to show you get it, then using a shared language is one way to do that. But jargon also has a darker side. It can be used to deliberately distort meaning. Think about the euphemisms for layoffs. Even the term layoff is a euphemism. Downsizing, right-sizing, delayering kind of sounds like a spa treatment, like it's not going to hurt, but... Employees who are being laid off obviously understand that they're being laid off, regardless of how that is packaged up and communicated to them. I mean, the consequences of, of receiving that message are so clear, and yet the message itself is very unclear. And so I think that, you know, that's also frustrating for employees because they clearly understand they're not going to be working there anymore. Um, but the message suggests almost like it's not this terrible thing. It's just, you know, you're, uh, you know, minorly inconvenienced by not being in a go forward role. When a company uses a word like delaying, it distances itself from the human side of someone losing their job. Eric Anisich says this happens everywhere. We're surrounded by language that obscures what's really being said. Jargon just kind of creeps into all aspects of life because, I mean, so much of our life is wrapped up in our work. I think it was just two days ago, I was watching the news on television and, and the anchor was interviewing a law enforcement analyst and they were talking about an unsolved crime and the law enforcement analyst talked about needing to get items of evidentiary value and needing to catalog those to include in the investigative pathway. I mean, basically what this person was saying on television was the police need to collect evidence to try to solve this crime, right? Which is what the police would do for any unsolved crime. I mean, the person communicated nothing of value and they did so in an incredibly long-winded way. So yeah, jargon can go wrong, but it also contains multitudes. It can be efficient shorthand, lazy writing, a status signifier. And as much as it does bug people like John Moritsugu, I recognize that language evolves and that many things that we say today, people 100 years ago would say, how can you possibly say that? I'm okay with language evolving, but the things that bother me bother me. And, you know, there you go. Well, John, at the very least, know this. At the cost of living, we'll grow crops, we'll grow a beard, but we will never grow profits. Happy holidays. This is a best of edition of The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Habershoot.
Canadians buy 80% of our groceries from just five big chains. Loblaw, Empire, Metro, Walmart, and Costco. But what if you could shop somewhere else and pay less? How could that be? Our producer, Daniel Nerman, finds out. So starting here, I got two bags of shredded cheese for $6. Brandy Dustin just got back from a big grocery shop. We've got some eye of round steaks, and I don't know if you can see, they are thick. Brandy lives in southern BC in a community called Roosevelt. Um, I honestly don't know the exact population, but there's not very many. It's Roosevelt is right next to the U.S. border. So once a week, Brandy crosses the border to buy groceries in Montana. She figures she saves about $300 a month. Staples like milk, cheese, and butter are much cheaper. And the biggest savings? Meat. We had tons of smoked ribs this summer, which I haven't had in ages. The beef roast, I haven't had beef roast in years because, quite honestly, I can't afford it. And I picked up yesterday a 3.77-pound pork roast for $3.73 American. And yes, Canadians are allowed to cross the border with a pork roast. In fact, you can bring back 20 kilos of chicken wings if you really want. Even 20 kilos of bananas. You just gotta declare it. Ambarish Chandra teaches economics at the University of Toronto and researches cross-border trade. He says there are lots of reasons why some foods are cheaper south of the border. For one, the U.S. grocery industry is really big. Market size is massive. It it explains so much of why prices are so different. The U.S. just operates at a much bigger scale. And so grocers, they can provide their range of goods at much lower prices in the U.S. market than they can in Canada. American grocery chains have buying power. They order so much that they can negotiate lower prices with suppliers and manufacturers. Chandra says compared to Canada, there's more competition in the U.S. grocery biz. And the country's biggest player is known for its everyday low prices. Walmart's super inflation buster sale blasts through the inflation barrier with big discount savings on... Because Walmart is so dominant in the U.S. and there they can drive prices down really low because of their scale, that, of course, forces all of their competitors to try to match them. And we just don't have that kind of competition here. Then there's labor. Wages are lower in the U.S. than Canada. Chandra says that brings down costs in all areas of the supply chain, from farm workers to meat packers to truck drivers and cashiers. For many of us, it's probably not worth the cost of gas just for a block of cheap American cheddar. But it is for Brandy Dustin. That grocery store in Montana is just a 15-minute drive from her house. So crossing the border makes sense, even with the exchange rate. The dollar is awful. (laughs) But I am still saving. Like, I check and see kind of what the sales are in Canada, and 
Every time I look, I'm like, oh, I know I can save more in the U.S. And right now, every dollar counts. Brandy is waiting on surgery and can't work. So finding deals is her job. My husband and I like to joke, I'm the house manager, if you will. In the future, I am hoping that our prices can come down a bit and I can support our our Canadian economy a bit more. It's just made it a little hard to do. So I'm doing what I have to do to support my family. For The Cost of Living, I'm Danielle Nerman. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Put up your hand if you watch House Hunters on HGTV. She wants an open-concept, mid-century modern home near downtown St. Louis. He'd like a cozy craftsman with a big yard in the suburbs. Their budget? $200,000. Cut to Canadian viewers staring blankly at the screen. Two hundred dollars for a house in a big Canadian city? Good luck. Housing affordability is one of this country's biggest problems. And house hunting here, Jennifer Keene, not for the faint of heart. No, it is not. Prices have gone kind of bonkers in this country. And when you compare us to other places in the world, it can be shocking. In fact, there's a commentator on TikTok who does quite a few videos about real estate in Canada. He goes by the handle Millennial Moron. And he has this recurring bit where he looks at houses for sale in cities like Vancouver... So, three bed, three bath, cool ceiling fan south of downtown. What do you think it'll cost you to live here? Only five and a half million dollars. And he compares those to castles on the market in Europe. The ground floor of the main house features an entrance hall, cloakroom, event space, billiard room, a fireplace, drawing room, sitting room, garden room, dining room, kitchen, secondary kitchen, butler's pantry, office, smaller sitting Butler's room. pantry? That, that sounds nice. <laughs> He's actually describing a place called Altmore Estate in Scotland, which was recently put up for sale by Bob Dylan. Okay, so what's Bob Dylan's castle going for? Get this. Less than the three-bedroom in Vancouver. Come on. It's selling for just over $4 million Canadian. But you don't need to spend that much. If you're willing to live in something a little less rock starry, say, you can find a villa or a chateau in the country. So we have 11 bedrooms in yeah. total. There's um, three floors. Three floors. So we got the main floor that we're sitting on now with dining room, grand salon, um, Petit salon, Petons. office. Yeah, and uh, a, a couple and of years ago, Sarah and Stephen Cole were watching a lot of that reality show called Escape to the Chateau. They were living in Fergus, Ontario, and they thought, why not? So they traveled to France and started looking. And in that two month period, we, we saw, I think, five chateaux. Yeah. Um, and this one was the last one we saw. We didn't actually get to see the interior, but. Um, it just t- tugged on the heartstrings. and It's a 16th century chateau in the south of France. What we realized is 
for the money that we could get for our house in Fergus, we could buy this one. And we were, it was definitely a factor of the, the pricing of the, the Ontario housing market. We knew it was, it was wild. How nice was their house in Fergus? I think it was pretty nice. They had a four-bedroom on the main drag in Fergus. They'd done some reno to it over the years, put on a deck. And, you know, this was during the pandemic. Fergus is a couple of hours outside of Toronto, so just the kind of place that people were looking to move out to. And their house sold within the week. So we went from, you know, three-quarters of an acre in Ontario to 37 acres in France. We basically um, bought this outright. Yeah, uh, on we the just, proceeds of, of the house. It was pretty much a sort of straight swap. So they traded a four bedroom in Fergus for a chateau in southern France. That's quite something. <laughs> it is. But they sold their house in Fergus for twice what they paid for it five years earlier. Huh. Well, this is really kind of the double edged sword of Canadian real estate, isn't it? You've got people out there who want to buy a house, they can't get in the market, they're being shut out, stuff just isn't affordable. But then if you're an existing homeowner, your house is worth a whole bunch more. Like Sarah's and Stevens. For them, things just fell into place. Like there is, yeah. there, that is, that is an, a reality that can happen if you, you know, you can sell your house and move here. Um, and you can fall in love with the fantasy. I mean, this, oh, is, yeah. this is a fairy tale. Okay, so how's the fairy tale? Like what's life like in an 11-bedroom French chateau? Well, it's a slower, small-town life. It takes a lot of effort, though, to look after all of that space. As, as one real estate agent told me, no one normal buys a castle. <laughs> the number of people who actually want to buy one is pretty small. And the supply, according to realtor Alex Watzdorf, is surprisingly large. Basically, if you, if you look at Europe, you look at countries like Germany or, or France or Italy, and there's a huge abundance of uh, old castles. Um, these countries uh, had a feudal system. So every little um, village, every little area had their own um, lord and they would have a castle. So, so Europe is just kind of like chock-a-block with castles? It is. They're all over the place. And these are structures that were built to last. I mean, Alex says the other thing you need to keep in mind is that castles are designed to repel your enemies. But maybe not have, like, an open-concept kitchen. (laughs) They have towers where you can pour the boiling oil down on them. (laughs) That's what they're like. So they're old. They're drafty. If you want to update them, it's going to cost you. Uh, And hence you get these the the, the prices that you see. You know, you see castles in France that are being offered for for one euro. But the the money that you have to put into it is uh, astronomical. Well, yeah, yeah. You got to pay a moat guy. Yeah, I wonder if they have moat guys. Probably. It's a, maybe not a growth industry, but, but sure. <laughs> so, you know, you either have money to burn, right? Or you're like Stephen and Sarah. You turn the property itself into a moneymaker. So they have artists' retreats, they host guests, and they have a YouTube channel called Manor and Maker. So what I'm hearing here, being Lord of the Manor, not really cheap. But, but this idea, Jen, that, that you can trade a Canadian bungalow for a castle, it's still kind of wild. It is. I mean, Canadian house prices have gone up sharply in the last 10 years, but our incomes haven't kept up. John Pasalis is the founder of Realosophy. It's a real estate brokerage in Toronto. He says, compared to some of our peer countries, we aren't doing so great. So we're significantly less affordable. I mean, you know, if we compare it to the U.S., you know, U.S. home prices have been appreciating probably closer to incomes than we have in Canada. 
Uh, and Canada has, has significantly accelerated relative to, you know, what's going on in most other countries, I'd say, around the world. Average house prices have roughly doubled in the last 10 years. Now, that's mostly driven by the really hot markets in Ontario and B.C., but still. Yeah, but still, prices across the country, they're up and up a lot, as you're saying. And this isn't news to us. We've been talking about this for what seems like forever, Jen. And we've talked about the fixes for years, mortgage stress tests, new rules for foreign buyers. They tried to slow down demand, but, you know, it hasn't really stopped prices from going up. And then there's the population growth in this country. You can point to other things, but Pasala says our population has just grown much faster than other G7 countries. The reason population growth usually has a huge impact on home prices is because it's very easy for a country to say, okay, let's let's grow by an extra 300,000 people next year, right? It's very easy to do, you know, uh, the federal governments have all the levers to do that. It's very hard to say, well, let's build an extra 150,000 homes next year. Canada's population is going up at a rate of around 3% a year, whereas some European countries, it's more like 1% a year. Well, that's a really big gap. And I guess part of what it means is there's more demand for a two-bedroom in Kitchener than there is for a, I don't know, castle in Sweden. Or a chateau in France. When Stephen and Sarah bought their chateau, it, it had been on the market for three years. What was it like? Were there like deer in the foyer? Was it all overgrown with vines and moss? <laughs> it would be nice to think. I, I don't know. But what I do know is the, the market there just isn't as hot as it is in Canada. And that's something that they had to think about when they decided to move. Because if something were to happen and they need to come back to Canada. We probably could sell the chateau and not have enough money to move back to Fergus. Yeah. Like that, that could be a reality of it. Huh. So you can escape to the chateau, but if Canada's housing market doesn't slow down, you might not be able to afford to come back. The housing market of no return. Huh. All right. Thanks, Jen. You're welcome. Oh, and a quick update on Bob Dylan's estate in Scotland, Altmore House. It just sold for $7 million, $2 million over asking. So, you know, can't find that kind of money just blowing in the wind. That's the show. From all of us at The Cost of Living, happy holidays. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline Felice Navidad Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Havertrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.